This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Welcome to The Grapevine and a new voice this week. I'm Mary Bolling, one of the CQ Uni comms team based down in the furthest reaches of central Queensland in Melbourne. And I'm here with one of the biggest personalities on campus, Bruce McKenzie. Bruce, what do you do here? Um, I teach programming basically and I'm the unit coordinator for um, introduction to programming and uh, programming fundamentals and it's it's quite an honour because uh, they tend to put the more experienced lecturers as coordinators for first year subjects which is the way it should be to give them the best grounding. So uh, I've been teaching for about mm, over 20 years, Um, boy am I tired. uh, Well, I was going to pick up on you saying you're one of the more experienced lecturers. You're definitely probably the personality on campus. I don't think there'd be a soul that doesn't know Bruce McKenzie. How did you come to CQU and get so infamous? Well, uh, it's always fate things, you know. I I was working as a professional software engineer and just through fate I ended up back in Melbourne again um, for the birth of my second child. And, you know, trying to find work and things and apply for all these programming jobs and they'd sort of look at my credentials and think, hmm, actually, probably knows more than all the bosses here, you know, it's a bit of a danger. Uh-huh. So I was always involved with leading-edge stuff all the time and used to love, love my programming and stuff. And it's funny how you get jobs. I was looking through the papers and they had, it was Deakin University and they were advertising something about multimedia courses. And I thought, oh, right, they need someone who knows multimedia, obviously, to do something in that respect. And I went into Deakin and uh, I sent my resume and they said, oh, come in, come in. And they said, oh, look, what we're advertising for is students to do it, not someone to sort of be a consultant or whatever. They said, look what you can do. Uh, we've got a, a teacher away. Would you like to take a class? I went, oh, okay. So immediately I got a contract for a year to be an associate lecturer there at Deakin and, um, and had to sort of just throw in the deep end, of course. And after that, I, I, the contract expired and uh, I moved on and ended up getting a job at Chalmers College. Uh-huh. And worked there as it was, they were doing diploma courses and that with international students. And CQU bought out the college and right. the students. And a lot of the lecturers from there came across to CQU. And so, bang, there I got a job as lecturer. That was way back in 2001. Yeah, so you ended up here a bit by default almost, but yes. it clearly was meant to be. What, right. what about getting into IT originally? And it must have been right at the beginning of oh, the well, IT explosion. We have to go back to the beginning of 1985. Now, you wouldn't have been born then. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, it was sort of by fate. I was living on the Gold Coast. Uh, I was renting, I was with my partner. I was renting a flat off my dad, actually. Mm-hmm. And I was one street back from the beach. It was ideal. It was really good. 
And at that time, I was doing flim-flam singing telegrams. You can just imagine me getting into a gorilla suit or a chicken outfit, <laughs> running into parties and celebrating and telling jokes. And Oh, we had all sorts of costume characters. I used to do strippograms or a party. <laughs> but it's sort of how my personality is. So Right, and, right. And it really helps with teaching because I was used to, I used to do telegrams in front of thousands of people sometimes or maybe just an intimate little group, middle of shopping centres, parties and um, leagues, clubs and whatever. I used to run in there, sing telegrams. <laughs> and that was quite, that's what I was doing part-time. And I used to love beach fishing. Now, a family friend of my partner, Decided to come down fishing one day and said, Oh, well, he lived he, from a wealthy family, he lived on the broad water on the Gold Coast, and says, Oh, we never get any fish, we're lucky to get a. a if he, I said, No, nah, no, come down to the beach. And I'd get down there and I'd get pippies out of the sand, cast in my surf baron 13 foot rod over the back, and here I am pulling in brim and flathead and whiting and dart and stuff, and I'd filled the bucket, and he couldn't believe it. He says, I never thought you could catch fish off the beach. I said, you've got to know where and when and look for the gutters. And just by chance, he happened to mention he was going to be doing his HSC again at a TAFE. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was, we were sort of, sort of at crossroads, and I said, oh, wow, I, you know, I've had all this education of that. I might go back and do my HSC again with... The thought of going to university now obviously computers weren't on the mind at that stage and and we went and enrolled and away we went it was over 32 weeks you did year 11 and 12 that was four eight-week terms gee that would be intense <laughs> it was intense and when i enrolled i enrolled in i was had back in my mind i might want to be a doctor or something my brother was actually a programmer okay and uh, and I didn't even know the difference between software and hardware. There. I knew <laughs> nothing. No one had a computer in their houses. This is mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Nobody. And uh, so I thought, all right, I'll see how I go. Anyway, I got top marks in mathematics, so on the strongest subjects, and got enrolled in the University of Queensland doing a bachelor of science. Now I actually enrolled first of all in pure maths, three honours program. And, of course, wanted to do computing along the way, just to see how I went. And oh, it was, I, I can be empathetic with students. I'd never touched a computer, didn't even know what a computer program was, but it was my mathematical background which got me through the higher order critical thinking. And, and I remember going through pages and pages of paper, working out these, you know, integral calculus and trigonometry and, and all that sort of stuff. And when I got my very first assignment, and I just didn't have a clue what to do. I just, you know, I could just think, because I, I see students and they look at the specification, they don't know where to start. So that was, it's a good experience for me thinking, right, well, this is how I did it. And I guess you didn't have a computer to take it home and no, do it on either. No, the, the, our access to computers was two hours a week. Oh. We had, the first year labs actually had Macintosh SEs. You know, so it was a gooey environment, no hard disk. And I remember buying the very first floppy disk at the, and the bookshop only had a little box of floppy disks, and that was it. It was $10. Whoa. Now, in those, that day, that could have fed me for a week. And being a student and still working part-time doing the chooker grabs and stuff at uni, I actually had a pager, and I'd be sitting in lectures and, and 
my boss had my timetable so she would be able to page me and I'd sit there at the end of the lecture and my pager would go off and everyone would laugh and go, quick, Bruce, grab your chook strip. You know? <laughs> and only having two hours a week on the computers meant that you had to have it all written out, get into the lab, and it took me the whole hour just to type in this one program and I got it working, I got it running and oh, it, was, it just clicked from there. And I spent so much time programming so I eventually got a computer myself. I got a, a Commodore Amiga, which was right. way ahead of its time at that stage, you know, in 1986. And even though I didn't have Pascal, it had a thing called Amiga Basic, which is a precursor of the, the visual, but I could still do all the code. And I'd sit down there and I'd just write code and code and get the errors and everything. And so that's what I tell the students. It's, it's all practice. The more you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. So... And then when I finished my past degree after three years, I wanted to continue. I actually got a scholarship to do honours because I got my GPA up from pass to distinction. Right. You know, because I got the hang of uni. It was all clicking, yeah. Well, that's right. And I knew how to get through the subjects and that. And I eventually um, did the honours year, which was, was really good because um, I got to do projects and stuff. And, like, the last three months, it was just work, sleep, maybe get a hot dog, work, <laughs> sleep. It was just intense, completing yeah. really large projects. And after I'd finished my honours degree, I thought, right, okay, I want to get some work now. My previous partner, we'd had a child, but we'd separated. She moved to Melbourne, so I thought, I'll come back to Melbourne. And there I, I got a job with a company called Space Time Research. Oh, and that sounds futuristic. Well, it, they weren't into what it was. What they used to do was put very large databases of mainframes onto CD-ROMs. Now, okay. in those days, the early 90s, hard disks were 30 megabytes and um, a CD-ROM could hold 580 megabytes. So instead of people having to go to mainframes or whatever, they could... We used to work with the Bureau of Statistics and put the census actually on CD-ROM and with maps and everything and, uh, you know, on PCs and computers didn't come with CD-ROMs then. So we, and I used to have to learn how to install an external, put a card into their computer and install a CD-ROM. And I eventually worked on the English census. Okay. And that was the 1984 English census. So this little Aussie sitting in an office <laughs> in Hawthorne was the first to put the English census on three CD-ROMs. It was massive. You could imagine big data and stuff like that. But I was in charge of the database, basically, mm -hmm. being able to rip the... We used to, the data used to come on tapes, you know, the old reel to rip the big ones, and I used to load them up, and then we had this thing called a... Um, a, it was a CD-ROM emulator. It looked like a big washing machine. And it had four um, 300 megabyte disks in it, which gave us a space of 1.2 gigabytes. And we just thought, whoa, who would ever need that amount of space? <laughs> wow, this is incredible. And, yeah, and away we went. And I parted company with them. I, got a, I went a bit bohemian. I was trying to get a band together and stuff and playing the guitar and... And eventually I thought, oh, I've got to get back into it again. And just by fate, I happened to 
meet up with a, some people with a company called CD-ROM and Multimedia Technology. As soon as they got my resume and saw I worked for Space Time and, and they knew that the companies knew of each other then because it wasn't mainstream. You either worked for a bank on a mainframe or TAB or something like that. There wasn't much software written in Australia for PCs. And yeah, I ended up with a, a job in Sydney working out at um, Castle Hill, uh-huh. um, doing, putting, you know, coffee ta- table books as multimedia onto CD-ROMs. I was even working for a company selling storage solutions, but that, that they folded. And, and as I mentioned before, I got the job at Deacon and, and that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's that's the story. That's how I got here. <laughs> that's it's a long and colourful story. I didn't expect it to involve so many chickens, but but I guess um yeah, being like you sounds like you were working very hard, but do you see the benefits now of being an early adopter of programming and sort of being at that forefront before before like you said, computers even had CD ROMs? Well, well it is the the problem is now and what programmers face, if anyone's got a computer problem, they think you can fix it straight away. Oh, my printer's not working. Why is this happening and, and stuff, you know? And, and uh, you know, I just say, oh, look, have you tried rebooting? And, you know, and that's the, <laughs> the general response. But it has been good. And learning to program is good for your everyday life, just with thinking, you know, what we call computational thinking. And what my doctorate which I'm doing at Melbourne Uni at the moment, what it involved, what I'm looking at is coding in schools. It should be taught, not with the aim of everyone becoming, you know, um, Bill Gates or something or some power sure. programmer, but just learning the basics of computational thinking, you know, like abstraction, being able to look at a problem and get rid of everything irrelevant and just focusing on what you need to represent in a program. And it teaches you logic. Yeah. Because yep. you, you, people face problems every day and, and sometimes you've got all these things to do and you get none of them done. And at least with programming, you can prioritise things and think, right, okay, well, look, I've got all these things to do. I might be able to get them all done, but I'll do the, the ones which are important. Be able to order things in that way. And um, But it's the... Children of today, we call digital natives. They've grown That's... up with it. The, the kids, you know, I see them in their prams. They, they, <laughs> they can't even wipe their bottom, but they're, they're playing on their iPads and, and stuff like that. So they're used to it. It's a brave new world, but I guess, you know, each generation has its own early adopters. Like with the students you see coming through now and even, you know, kids still in primary school and high school who are, are these digital natives, like what advice would you give them? about, you know, being ahead of the curve when it comes to technology when they are so surrounded by it? Well, they, they're just they're native to it. They, they just accept it and use it. Mm. And the problem is is that they can, they're all whiz-bang on their iPhones and stuff. They can do all this and, you know, they can use their Photoshops and their Snapchats and Instagram and, and do all that, but they can't create content. Like, like they can create content but not applications to work on that. And you, you, you see these whiz kids now, you know, they're eight years old and they've developed an app and got a company and they're millionaires basically. <laughs> That'd be nice. They're, yeah, but, but they've, they've learned to code. And, mm. and that's what, 
it'd be really good, especially for Australia, is that we get coding in schools. And there is movements now, and they, it's not a, a mainstream subject. Uh, it's not compulsory. The problem is if you introduce a new compulsory subject, something else has to go, you know. So what does go then, you know? It should be part of mathematics, you know, they should teach logic and basic coding skills. Let's take a turn. Um, your other role on campus for a very long time has been coordinating the AFL footy tipping competition. <laughs> well, that's right. I've done that from word go. I've always liked to be in the footy tipping competition because it's one, it, it gives people something to talk about and it keeps you interested, you know, because you, you actually listening to a game and thinking, oh, I picked them and they're out, so they're, they're, they weren't the favourites. And you, you actually got a reason to barrack and follow other games because I, I love Aussie rules. I was born in Melbourne and just grew up with my dad. He used to go to the footy every Saturday and I was lucky he'd take me and he was a St Kilda supporter. So, of right. course, I had to become a St Kilda supporter and I still don't regret it because I think we're the chosen ones. We, we get through, <laughs> put, through all these, you know, like... Uh, obstacles and hurdles and things like that. We got pretty close. Uh, I think since I've been back in Melbourne, we've been in four grand finals. and That's four heartbreaks though, isn't that's it? That's right. <laughs> uh, the first one was Adelaide in uh, 97, I think it was. And, and of course, the toe poke from Geelong to get them that goal and then the ball bouncing the wrong way. Wow, it's just... It's just we're, it's just to test you to try it out, I think. I'm sorry to bring it up. But at the same time, it, it is something that brings the campus together when it is a very international campus and yeah. also um, a lot of people who formerly lived in Queensland and might not have been native AFL followers um, are working on campus as well. How did you how did you approach starting footy tipping even here? Well, it was, there was actually footy tipping already going mm-hmm. and it was run by... Um, one of our colleagues, and I actually took it over because I'd, I'd run footy tipping comp at Chalmers, and he and and he, he really didn't want to do it. Right. And so I thought, oh, I'll do it, and this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm just going to create an email address and put every all the recipients, uh, the players, in the contacts there, mm-hmm. and just do a bulk email with the teams. As you know, that like you get an email each week. And a spreadsheet of where you are and, and how you've been and stuff like that. And it's, um, it's always been the same cost. I probably could put it up a bit, but it's, the money's nothing. It's just for a little bit of interest, you know, it's, uh, because, you know, the $25 entry fee is fairly negligible today compared to 2001 when I started it. Sure. For instance, I think you can really buy a slab of beer in those days for <laughs> 25 Now you can. Barely buy a six-pack of some beers. It's, it's a bit, uh, yeah, it's crushing stuff. <laughs> the, um, even, you know, some of our lecturers from India, um, one, of, one of my colleagues, uh, he's going, oh, what's this footy chipping all about? And I said, he goes, oh, I'll give that a go. And he actually won it the first year because what? he didn't didn't have any bias. He would just look at, the, he would, li- I think he used to listen to all the different tipsters on the radio. Or sure. That. And he'd look at their records, and so he, he had a, a, a clean go at it. And he was able to 
just and, and he actually won the footy tipping, which and I say that to people. I go, the, the, if you don't know anything about it, well, typically you'll do well because it's it's using your brain and not your heart, and um, you know you get you look at odds and things like that, and um, some people get really serious. They get all the teams up there and they they rate all the players and and stuff. I've I've had there's quite a handful of uh, people who have been in it since day one, uh-huh. so that's. And and a lot of them have actually left the uni and they reckon it's great because they get to stay in contact with these people on the actual list. Because, sure. you know, they can, it's good to see, they go, oh, and they have little battles between each other where they are on the ladder and stuff. <laughs> you know, it's not so much getting at the top, but I've got to beat so-and-so. As long as I'm beating him, that's all right. It's, uh, but yeah, that's been uh, a passion of mine because I, my last play... Aussie rules for Pennant Hills in Sydney when I was 33. Okay. So, but, oh, fitness. I remember that after the first training session, I could not walk. <laughs> it's so, just so sore. I'm sure that your activity levels are about to go through the roof in your new role as a grandfather. So well, <laughs> good yes, luck with that. Yeah. And you might find yourself back on the footy field in no time. <laughs> and, he, and he might be a future programmer as well. Well... <laughs> <laughs> It's the school base which I've caught up with on Facebook. Actually, uh-huh. we've got our own group for our, from North Sydney. We had about two hundred kids in our year, sure. boys, and uh, and a few of them are actual gone into the programming sort of path. And one in particular, he he said none of my kids wanted to do it. You know, so if we could introduce programming earlier, there wouldn't might be this phobia about it. And they might think it's more of an enjoyable, artistic thing rather than a geeky, boring thing. It's it's very satisfying because I always wanted a job or actually produce something, mm-hmm. you know, whether, you know, a, a carpenter or a builder or something like that yep. where I could say, oh, look what I built. And when I was programming, I could hold up a CD-ROM and, and show people. They go, oh, wow, wow, that's, you know, and you actually built that. So it was... Uh, you know, a way of being able to use my mathematical background and stuff to, to get through. And, and teaching here, we, I have a lot of fun with the students. I try and make them laugh, you know, but <laughs> sometimes with jokes, I get lost on some of the international students, you know, and, uh, and the only time they really laugh is when the last lecture I go, oh, well, now you don't have to put up my lame jokes anymore. And they're, oh, 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 you know, yeah, of course. Oh, it's nice to be appreciated eventually. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But it's... Uh, it's a virtual thing because you can't touch a program. It's it's bits yeah. in memory, right, which we translate into these words and people look at code and go, what's that? You know, what does all this mean? That's just garbage. What is it, you know? And, uh, and so you've got to use a lot of analogies when you're talking about things and, and try and relate them to the real world. But advice to students, anyone getting into it, it's practice. Yeah. You know, I... I I say, look, if I had to teach you how to play the blues in 12 weeks from scratch, we'd start off with one chord and, and I'd learn teach you to strum. And you spend the next, from here to the next week, you'll have to do that for at least 20 hours. And then we'll learn the next chord. And, and I said, there's no way if you're going to play the blues after 12 weeks, you're going to do it the night before. That's probably a great place to finish. No, so. that's, that's fine. Thanks a lot, oh. Mary. It's, uh, it's good to have a chat and talk about these sort of things and, 
And hopefully someone out there might get some inspiration and think, oh, well, if he can do it, maybe I could too, you know. And, and it is a good job being doing just coding and stuff because you actually have control over what you're working on. There is can be stressful. You get deadlines. If that program's not working, you know, it's not working. So it's, and, or if you miss something and you send it to a client and there's a bug, you know, and, and you, they go, oh, this happened. And you think, well, you know, but it's so satisfying when you fix that bug. I can only imagine. That's, um, yeah, that's a great summary. Thank you so much for joining us, Bruce, on The Grapevine. Okay, thanks, Mary. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.